just want to read a couple of verses from Luke chapter 6. I'm sure these uh, words will be very familiar to you. Luke 6, verse 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measure to you. This morning's uh, study is week seven of our present series, We Are Church. And uh, Dan and I are focusing on what kind of a church we at Tamworth Elim are seeking to be based on the teachings of the New Testament. And so far we have declared that we are a number of things, that we are Jesus-centered, that we are a loving church, that we are a servant-hearted church, that we are a Bible-loving church, that we are an inclusive church, that we are a compassionate church. And this morning I'm going to talk to you about us being a generous church. But I think a good place to start in this talk is uh, to provide you with a definition of generosity. Generosity is defined as the act of giving or sharing more than is necessary or expected. The act of giving or sharing more than is necessary or expected. To give what we should give, that's an obligation, that's a duty. To give more than what is necessary or more than what is expected, that's generosity. So when you pay your bill at a restaurant and pay exactly what is on the tab, that is an obligation. You're required to pay that. If you've ordered it, you pay for it. If you don't pay for it, then you're going to be washing dishes for a long time. But if you give your wait waitress a tip, then you are showing generosity. Unless the meal comes to 60 pounds and your tip is 20 pence, in which case you're probably being tight-fisted or patronizing. But whenever we speak about generosity, we need to start with God. God defines generosity. He is generosity to the core. And he has given us far more than we can ever deserve or ever earn. And we read in Romans 5 verse 8, words of Paul, which, when he says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And John similarly writes in his letter, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I don't know about you, but I love that word lavished. It speaks of super abundance, being showered in blessing, being smothered in grace, being overwhelmed in mercy. And you see, God's generosity is nowhere better observed than in the life of Jesus. And as Christians, we are called to reflect the generosity of Jesus. And we are called to demonstrate the unconditional love of God to all people, his shalom, his peace and well-being, body, soul and spirit, regardless of their gender, marital status, race, ethnicity, religion, age, sexual orientation or social status. 
And Jesus is the one who informs us what God is like. And he says to us uh, in Luke chapter 11, Which of you fathers, he says, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And um, if you are someone who marks your Bibles as you're reading through it, I've underlined three words there. How much more? Underline those words in your Bible. We sing a song, and I I believe that we're going to sing it a, a little bit later in this church. Good, good Father, it is who you are. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But our understanding of God fundamentally shapes who we are both our character and our message. Have you got that? Our understanding of God fundamentally shapes who we are, our message and also our character. You see, if our understanding of Father God and Jesus Christ is outrageous love, then we will learn to respond to other people with that same love. If we begin... With that, we will begin to reflect God's character. We will see people in the way that other people, uh, uh, that God sees other people. And to put it quite bluntly, we will never drive a car, a speeding car, into a crowd of men, women, and children, or stab an unsuspecting police officer in the name of our God. Why? Because we recognize that. All people are made in the image of God. And we believe that all people are loved unconditionally by him. You see, generosity is at the heart of the character of God. And he calls us to have generosity of heart too. But what does that mean? What does that mean for us today? What does that mean in practical terms? Firstly, it means being generous with our finances. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote about the very poor Macedonian Christians. And he tells us about them in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says of these uh, Christians that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. And it seems as if Paul holds these Macedonian Christians up not only for the Corinthians, but for Christians of all ages and, uh, and nationalities. And he is saying... Look at these guys. They were quite incredible. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They weren't poor in the way that sometimes some people in the UK speak of poverty where you can't afford a satellite television or uh, a tumble dryer or a mobile phone. But the poverty of these Christians was extreme. And they pleaded with Paul to let them have the privilege of sharing in this offering, as we've taken an offering today for East Africa, for the famine appeal. We will never probably meet any of those recipients of our generosity. And it was much the same with these Macedonian Christians. They were giving because they heard of the great need, a famine relief fund in the first century. But the People were not in East Africa, they were in Palestine and they were fellow Christians. 
One of the most humbling experiences that Julie and I have ever had was when we sat on the floor. That's not Julie, that's Jackie, by the way. Julie's taking the photo there. Of, we sat on the floor of a Malawian pastor's home, eating goat with sema and relish in the dark. That doesn't look dark there, but that was the flash on the, on the camera lighting up the whole room. It was dark. There was no cutlery, no finery, no electricity. We were just sat on a threadbare rug. Uh, Julie and I, together with Jackie, we were guests of this uh, Malawian pastor. To have goat was a special treat for them. They didn't normally eat meat. And I also knew that this couple had ten children. And if I ate too much meat that evening, they weren't going to get anything because they had a meal after our meal as guests. It was quite a tension for us. Because uh, I didn't want to be rude and not eat the meal that was prepared for me. Uh, I think that probably would have been offensive to my hosts. But on the other hand, I wanted to make sure there was lots and lots of food, lots and lots of meat left over for those ten kids. And you see, in this country, we don't really know anything of that kind of poverty. Even the most hard up of us and those who perhaps use food bank regularly don't know that kind of poverty that people know in third world countries. And these first century Christians that Paul was commending were absolutely dirt poor. And Paul says that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Paul's words remind me of uh, the story in Mark's Gospel on the time that uh, Jesus was in the temple and he noticed crowds of people putting money into the temple uh, treasury and uh, rich people came by and threw in large amounts and then this poor widow came by and she put in two small copper coins all that she had to live on says Jesus and then Jesus went on to say that uh, they gave out of their wealth but she gave out of her poverty and the point of that is that generosity has nothing to do with the actual amount. It's possible that a poor person giving little can actually be more generous than a rich person giving a large amount. In the Old Testament, uh, people were obliged to tithe. That is, give one-tenth of their income to the temple. But in the New Testament, which is the teaching for Christians, there is no set amount commanded because the New Testament works on totally totally different principles. In the New Testament, it's all about free will giving. And giving cheerfully, not begrudgingly. I love the way that some African countries take an offering. You know, we don't even take an offering here on a Sunday morning. There's a little box at the back. But they come dancing down to the front with hankies waving to put their money in a bucket but the New Testament says that we're to give cheerly, cheerfully, not begrudgingly. And before we say that we are far more cheerful about giving £5 than £50 into the church offering, we need to remind ourselves that in the New Testament, standards always go up to the Old Testament. And if you don't believe me, have a read again of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7. The New Testament speaks of generosity and sacrifice. And Paul teaches that those who sow generously will also 
reap generously. Now, it's interesting to know the context here, and for anybody who's been at this church for any length of time, you will know that I've given you three rules of interpretation when you're reading the Scriptures, because you can make the Scriptures say anything you want them to say. And the three rules are context, context, context. Sorry about that. I'm getting boring, I know. But it's so important that we understand the context of whatever we're reading. So what does Paul actually mean by these words? Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. The context is the context of financial giving. And Paul is speaking of money. In other words, he is saying that as we sow our finances into God's kingdom, we will reap generously. What did he mean by that? Did he mean what some of these uh, American TV evangelists teach, that God promises you a tenfold increase for every dollar that you give to the TV station ministry? I've seen it. You know, give $10 to this particular ministry and God will reward you with $100. Give $100 and he will reward you with $1,000. You see, my thinking on that is... It's it's just ungodly nonsense. At best, and at worst, it's dishonest and fraudulent. You see, having a generous heart and giving, as we have been doing this morning, to kingdom causes, is not some kind of get-rich-quick scheme. You don't give, ever, in order to get. But let me just quickly add that you do get a return on your investment. Now most of the time, most of the time I believe that that is not a financial return. But it would be wrong of me to tell you that it's never a financial return. Sometimes it is. Some of you might have come across this gentleman. Hudson Taylor, the founder of the, in, uh, of the, the I need to say the Inland Revenue. <laughs> no, it was before that of the China Inland Mission in 1865, and thousands of people, Chinese people, were converted uh, through his ministry. It's a great story, he tells. At the age of 27, he was preparing to go to China as a missionary. He was working hard in his day job throughout the week. At weekends, he was ministering. He lived a very frugal life. He ate a bowl of porridge every morning, and every other evening, it was a bowl of gruel. That was his diet. And one day he was asked to go and pray for a poor man whose wife was dying. The only money that Hudson Taylor possessed in the world was his week's wages, which was two shillings and sixpence. Now, for anybody as old as me, you will remember that two shillings and sixpence is the equivalent of 12 pence. Or 12 and a half, yes, but we did get rid of the... Yes, yes, I knew that. Dear me, pedantic, isn't it? Yes, sir. So what we're saying is very little today, but it was a whole week's wages in the middle of the 19th century. But when he saw their poverty, he, he, he just initially felt that he would gladly have given them one shilling and kept one shilling and sixpence for himself. And After a little while of talking to this family, talking to this mother and her five children, he would have gladly kept the shilling for himself and given them one shilling and sixpence. And as the conversation continued, he talked about the love of his heavenly father. 
He felt he was a bit of a hypocrite, that he was not prepared to trust God in this himself. And at that moment, he would have gladly given two shillings to them and kept six pence for himself. And after he led them in the Lord's Prayer, his heart was heavy and he struggled to say the words. And the husband asked if he would be able to help them if he could. And after immense struggle, he gave them all the money that he possessed in the world, two shillings and sixpence. And he records of when he went home that night to eat his bowl of gruel. He just sang and danced. His heart was full of joy at that moment. The following morning, he received an unexpected letter. Inside, he found a pair of gloves and half a sovereign. Now, a sovereign was 21 shillings. He had received a 400% in return on his investment in 12 hours. And that was a turning point of his life. Because he needed to trust God in huge ways in China when he went there as a missionary. But he saw God work in that particular way. And he often came back to that and remembered what God had done and the way that God would see him through the next trial. And he learned to trust God. You see, if we sow generously, we will reap generously. But most of the time, please don't miss what I'm saying, and most of the time, that reaping isn't financial but we can reap in many other ways. And God blesses in many other ways. For example, I know a lot of you have been giving sacrificially to the baby feeding pro program in Malawi th this last year. And I'm sure that the rewards that you have reaped through that is seeing your baby not only survive, but flourish. How good was that? Wonderful. And that is reaping as we have sown. I know a number of you last weekend offered your homes to put up children from Uganda. You offered hospitality and accommodation and you ferried them around in cars. And there's a certain amount of inconvenience. Of course there was. There was a cost to you. But I'm sure that for those who did that, what you sowed, what you reaped was far more than what you sowed. Because you reaped the, the delight of having these children in your homes. You reap the blessing of hearing their stories. You reap that sense of well-being, of offering one small act of kindness to children from such impoverished backgrounds. When you sow by sacrificially giving to our church, you reap three wonderful and amazing pastors. <laughs> so I said that with a bit of a tongue in, a ch tongue in my cheek. More seriously, you reap the joy of seeing lives transformed through the ministry of this church, of children learning the ways of God, of older people being cared for and befriended, those on the margins of society being cared for and loved and accepted, and of Alpha courses bearing fruit, and so much more. I sometimes ask myself hard questions like, how generous am I? Not you, it's your business, not my business. How generous am I with my possessions? Another question I ask, do I see myself as an owner or as a manager of my wealth? That's a, that's a tough question. Some of you may not get what's being asked there. Let me, let me unpack that a little bit uh, for you. 
you might be saying, well, what is the difference between an owner and uh, a steward or an owner and a manager? Well, first of all, an owner sees everything that they have, their homes, their cars, their bank balances, their salaries as their own, and as their own to do with as they so please. If they want to give a gift to the church, then it's up to them. If they don't, then they don't. And they will see everything that they have as their own. Use it as they please. That's their particular mindset. But the steward is a person that sees everything that they have as God's, including themselves. They recognize that they have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. They have been bought by a, a great price. And instead of seeing everything as they own, that they own as their own, they see it as God's. But then recognizing that God would say to them, I will let you borrow these riches. And you can use these riches to live in my world. You can purchase a home. You can buy food. You can have transport. You can even have a holiday. But I want you to use my riches wisely and generously. And I want you to be open-hearted, not tight-fisted. I want you to be with my wealth, says the Lord. I want you to be generous, not miserly. These are my riches, not yours to, and not yours to withhold. But they are mine to bless others and my work. And I would say to you this morning, ask yourself that question. Which way do you see yourselves? Do you see yourself as owners or do you see yourself as stewards? And when we can get to a place when we see ourselves as stewards of whatever God has given us, that is something which is entirely and totally life-changing. It really is. Life-changing. Let me move on. You've gone very quiet. Being generous isn't only about money and finance. It's also about other things. Generous with our time. You see, it's sometimes easier to, be, to part with our money than it is to be generous with our time. And I think that that's a, a, quite a challenge to parents with young families that we don't substitute the time we need to spend with our children with gifts or electronic gadgets or treats. You know, the parent who says, uh, I, I'm working hard to provide my kids for what I didn't have when I grow up, needs to realize that, uh, that uh, gifts and gizmos are no substitute for time. <clears throat> In Luke chapter 19, we read of Jesus entering the ancient city of Jericho. And he looked up into a sycamore tree, and there was uh, Zacchaeus. And he calls him by name. I'm not sure how he knew his name, whether he'd met him before, or whether someone had pointed him out, or whether he just knew supernaturally. We're not told that in the story. But there was Zacchaeus up in a sycamore tree, and he was up in a sycamore tree because he was only a little fella, and he couldn't see over the crowds. And he wanted to listen to what Jesus had to say. Zacchaeus, for those who have not come across him before, was a tax collector for the Romans, taking taxes from his own people. He was regarded as a traitor and also as a thief because many of the tax collectors lined their own pockets dishonestly. And instead of 
taking the opportunity that afternoon to preach to the crowds, Jesus singled out this one rogue and said he was going to stay at his house. Can you imagine that? All the crowds gathering to listen to this wonderful preacher, teacher, miracle worker. And he picks up on, on, on a guy who's up a tree and he says, I'm coming to your house. That really pleased the crowds. Not. This is what Luke 19.7 says. All the people began to see this and began to mutter, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. In other words, Jesus, what are you playing at? You know who this guy is. He's, he's, he's not a friend, Jesus. He's an enemy. It's a great story. Jesus focused all his energy on one small, lonely, self-centered man. And Jesus gave generously of his time when no one else bothered with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus wasn't a nice man. By his own admission, he cheated, defrauded his own people. He lived a lavish lifestyle. He lived a life on the profits of crime. Yet, this encounter that he had with Jesus caused him to promise to give half his wealth away to the poor, and if he had cheated anyone, to give them four times as much in return. I was thinking about this story this week. And I thought to myself, I, I wonder whether Jesus' words to Zacchaeus would have had the same impact if he had just left him up in that sycamore tree. And that Zacchaeus, along with the rest of the crowd, heard what Jesus had to teach about. I wonder if they would have had the same impact upon his life. Now, I don't know the answer to that. I can't be sure, but somehow I doubt it. Personally, I think that Zacchaeus' transformation came about because Jesus treated him as a human being. And because Jesus freely gave Zacchaeus time and attention. Now in our world, many people are isolated. And they simply just don't have any social interaction at all with friends and family. And the most precious thing that we can give them is our time. You know, it's not just old people, but it's particularly old people. And I know it's younger people as well, but those, for example, who come into our prime time, sometimes when you get talking to them, there was one lady well into her 90s, I was talking with her, and she said, I so love prime time. She said, it's the only time I meet people in the entire week. You know, there are many people like that. You see, that's the world that we're living in. The most precious thing that we can give them is our time. I read of one medical doctor who said that he sees several of his patients often. And they regularly go to see him with a number of complaints. But their only real problem is that they're lonely. And that particular doctor has arranged with his secretary to contact them if they ever miss an appointment. Because as the doctor puts it, when they don't come to see me, I realize they must be ill. <laughs> what other ways? Can you just move the slide on, guys, please? This is sticking. Thank you. Generous with our attitude. The verses I just read from Luke chapter 6. Do not judge, or you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. 
Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a wonderful translation, the message translation puts it this way. Don't pick on people, jump on their failures, criticize their faults, unless, of course, you want the same treatment. Don't condemn those who are down. That hardness can boomerang. Be easy on people. You'll find life a lot easier. Give away your life. You'll find life given back. But not merely given back. Given back with bonus and blessing. Giving, not getting, is the way. Generosity begets generosity. Jesus said, do not judge or you will be judged. I don't know if you've ever judged people in that kind of way, in the way that they look. I watched a great video this week, and it's a testimony of a guy who was uh, originally caught up in the skinhead culture of his day. His name is Cliff Irvine, and he's now a Christian, and he attends the Elin Church in Exeter. And uh, we're going to watch a video for Cliff Irvine. It's only a couple of minutes long. And uh, for those now listening on podcast, please uh, pause the recording, click uh, the hyperlink on the Life Group Notes, and then come back to the recording later. Sit back in. I've had a terribly violent past. Seven and a half years in prison, tattoos, as you can see, all over his forehead and down the sides of his head. And yet, he is a trophy of God's grace. God has turned his life around, transformed him. Maybe that's why the phrase... Never judge a book by its cover is a, is a good phrase. You see, Jesus, the religious people of Jesus' day were full of judgment. And that's what religious people do best. But Jesus was full of grace. They wrote people off. Jesus accepted people as they were. People fled away from the religious leaders, but they fled to Jesus. Do you remember the story of Simon the Pharisee? He judged and despised the prostitute who came to the dinner party because she started uh, washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and wiping them with her hair. And he was terribly put out by that. Jesus treated her altogether differently. And he said, what you've done for me will be talked about wherever the gospel is preached the world over. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Jesus could have condemned Peter for his denial. Peter who boasted so much that he would never turn away from Jesus, even though the others might. And yet, when it came to the crunch, he disowned Jesus on three occasions. Did Jesus condemn him? No. Jesus provided a way for his reinstatement and restoration. Jesus could have condemned the woman caught in adultery, but he didn't. He said, neither do I condemn you. Leave now your life of sin. He might have condemned the Samaritan woman, but rather, he says to her in so many words, I see that you're thirsty, and talk to her about living water. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. The greatest example of forgiveness this world has ever known was when Jesus died upon that cross. When he cried out, To God for the persecutors, that they might be forgiven. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. That is the gold standard. We're talking of generosity. We're not just talking in financial terms. We're not just talking in terms of being generous with our times. 
but also with our gracious attitudes of forgiveness, non-condemnation, of not judging people just by what they look like or their past. I want to tell you a story, and time's nearly through, and I'm just going to finish with this story. It's a story told by Rabbi Pesha Krohn in his book, The Echoes of the Majid. And uh, he claims that this story is true and that uh, he knew the people that is involved in this story. And uh, the story is about a disabled lad by the name of Shay and his father. And Shay was uh, a pupil at uh, Chush, which is a, a Jewish school for disabled children in Brooklyn in New York. And one afternoon, Shay and his father walked past the park where there were some boys whom Shay knew. They were just playing baseball. And Shane asked his dad, do you think that they'll allow me to play as well? And his father knew that Shay wasn't an athletic kind of lad and that most boys would not want him in their team. But Shay's father understood that if his son had been chosen to play, it would certainly enable him to see himself in a better light and to be more comfortable and to have a sense of belonging. So Shay's father approached one of the boys in the field and asked if his disabled son, Shay, could play. The boy that he asked looked around for guidance from his teammates, and getting none, he then took uh, matters into his own hands and said, We're losing by six runs, and the game is in its eighth innings. I guess he can join our team, and we'll try to put him into bat in the ninth inning. Shay's father was ecstatic, and Shay was too. Shay was told to put on a glove and go out to play. At the close of the eighth innings, Shay's team was still behind by one run. But would that team actually let Shay bat? Certainly at this juncture, they, it was their chance to win the game. Surprisingly, Shay was given the bat. And everyone knew that it was almost impossible for Shay. He didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, let alone hit with it. However, when Shea stepped up to the batting position, the bowler moved a few steps forward and lobbed the ball gently towards Shea so that at least he could make some contact with the bat. The first ball came and Shea swung clumsily and missed. One of Shea's teammates came up to Shea and together they held the bat and faced the bowler waiting for the next pitch. The bowler again took a few steps forward and tossed the ball softly towards Shea. And as the ball came in, Shea and his teammates swung at the ball together, and they hit a slow ball along the ground back to the bowler. The bowler picked up and could have so easily have thrown the ball to first base, and if he had done that, Shea would have been out, and that would have ended the game. But instead, the bowler took the ball and threw it high and far beyond reach of the first baseman. And everyone started yelling, Shay, run, Shay, Shay, run to first, run to first. Never in his life had Shay run so quickly. He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and startled. And by the time he reached first base, the fielder had the ball. And he could have thrown it to the second base. And Shay would have been tagged out. But the fielder understood what the bowler's intentions were. So he threw the ball high and far over the third baseman's head. Everyone yelled, run to second, run to second. Shea ran towards second base as the runners ahead of him 
deliriously circled their bases towards home. As Shea reached second base, an opposing player ran to him and turned him into the direction of the third base and shouted, Run to third! As Shea rounded third, the boys from both teams ran behind him screaming, Shay, run home! Shay ran home, stepped on the home plate, and all 18 boys lifted him up on their shoulders and made him a hero. He had just hit a grand slam and won a game for his team. That day, his father said softly, as tears were running down his face, the boys from both teams helped bring a piece of true love and humanity into the world. Do you know what generosity looks like? It looks like that. It looks exactly like that. It looks exactly like what those 18 boys did to Shay on that day. Generosity is defined as an act of giving and sharing more than is necessary or expected. You see, generous churches see the good in others and respond with a spirit of kindness and compassion and open-handedness rather than judgment and condemnation. Generous churches do not look down at others as sinners, but they reach across to fellow strugglers on life's journey. Generous churches see a person's potential before they see a person's problems. Generous churches will be open-handed rather than tight-fisted and be open-hearted rather than small-minded. Generous churches see themselves as beggars telling other beggars where they can find food. Generous churches always see the best in people, not the worst. Those who are slow to take offence and quick to forgive. And generous people see others as made in the image of God and help people to belong. Tamuth Elim, we're not perfect. We haven't arrived. One day we will, when we see him face to face. But we aim high. And this New Testament value of extravagant generosity is our goal. By God's grace and by his strength. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have given us so much in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that we deserve nothing. And yet, Lord, through Christ, you have given us all things. Lord, it is our desire to bear your family resemblance and to be generous, Lord. In the way that we use finances, I pray, Lord, that we would see ourselves as not owners, but as stewards. Be generous in our time for other people. And also generous, Lord, in our gracious attitudes, we pray. And we pray this, Lord, for your honour. Amen.